0: I wanted to start by telling you guys a story from my childhood of one of the, uh, it's it's not something I really remember, but it's something my mom reminds me of fairly often, and that's that she planted flowers and uh, loves the garden, and one year I guess she had this pot of uh, geraniums, which I don't know that I could pick a geranium out of a lineup, but she had a pot of them and uh, they were on our, uh, like in our backyard in, in this, this, this pot. And my dad had a woodpile under our deck that he used in our fireplace. And on top of this wood pile he kept a bottle of lighter fluid that he used to uh, barbecue with. And I was uh, under five. I don't know exactly how old I was at the time. I think I might have been maybe right at five. But I climbed, climbed up on this woodpile and got this lighter fluid. And then I proceeded to spray it all over these geraniums. Thankfully, my parents did not keep matches by the lighter fluid because that's not what happens next. Instead, I took a, one of my Fisher-Price golf clubs and pre- proceeded to beat the life out of this pot of geraniums. Uh, Then my mom caught me in the act, Uh, not necessarily red-handed, but Fisher-Price Golf Club-handed. And my response to my mom catching me, my mom telling me in trouble, was to look her in the face and then poop my pants. (laughs) My mom, of course, was furious, Uh, not only because I was potty trained, and she knew that I just did it out of spite, uh, but because I destroyed her flowers with lighter fluid on a golf club. And my mom was on the phone at the time with uh, my Sunday school teacher, and my mom told her, I'm going to kill him. And this lady, who thought that I was this wonderful, innocent child that would never do something so horrible, got in her car and drove to our house because she was legitimately worried that my mom was going to do something. And so you're wondering, like, what does this have to do with grace? Well, I would like to tell you that, you know, 30 years later, I don't still do things like that. I don't put my pants anymore. I also don't make a habit of destroying flowers with golf clubs. But I still do things that I know are going to irritate people. I still do things that I know are going to hurt people that I care about. Uh, And sometimes, even when I'm caught in the midst midst of sin, instead of repenting immediately, I just keep sinning. I do something else that I know is going to hurt that person even more. But thankfully, what we're going to see in our passage today is that God's grace continues to work on us. It continues to transform us to be more and more and more like who Jesus desires us to be and less like who we were before. It continues to work on us so that when my little girls do crazy stuff like that, I don't kill them. I don't lash out at them in anger. And so, I guess the point for you kids this morning is to know that, number one, no matter how crazy or how horrible or how mean of a thing that you do to your parents, uh, God enables them to show you grace. And even when they don't do that, He enables you to show them grace. And He's going to continue to work in them. to make them a better mom and a better dad. And that story of what I did to my mom is really just a smaller picture of what we all do to God all of the time. right? He has this wonderful creation that he's made that we get to spend time in, that we get to interact with. And so very often, instead of doing what he calls us to do, instead of living the life that He's enabled us to and equipped us to, we grab a bottle of lighter fluid and spray this place down and then pick up a toy and beat the crap out of it. And yet He gives us grace. He replants the flowers, knowing that we're going to destroy them again. And this passage this morning is about the effect that grace has had in the world, the effect that it is having right now on us, and the the effect that it's going to continue to have throughout the rest of our lives. And thankfully, one of the things it tells us is that there is going to be an end. Grace is going to fully restore us. God is going to fully restore us, and he's going to make it so that we can't disrupt his creation anymore. He's going to make it so that we can enjoy it fully. And so, let's pray and then we'll read the passage together this morning. God, we thank you that you are our gracious Father. And even though we repeatedly disobey and misuse the gifts that you've given us, you continue to give us that which we don't deserve. Jesus, we thank you that you are an obedient child who always does the will of your Father. And that included coming here willingly, eagerly, to pay the penalty for all of our disobedience. Jesus, we thank you that grace is a reality because of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray today that as we talk and read and and learn about your grace, that you would enlarge our view of it that we would leave here having more of an appreciation for how your grace has changed us and how it is changing us and how it's going to ultimately be brought to completion in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs. And today's passage is on page 998. In those Bibles. Again, that was Titus chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's it. Four short verses today. And in some ways, this passage is really, really easy to preach on because it's simply a brief And yet, comprehensive explanation of the gospel. It presents a a big gospel, a necessary gospel, both for Christians and for non-Christians. And because of that, I find myself going back to this passage again and again and again in conversations with people, in counseling, even in sermons. We just talked about this passage, uh, I think, back in the beginning of October when we went through uh, the fall series. And so I feel like in some ways I could just stand up here and wing this sermon and uh, you guys might not know that I winged it. But on the other hand, it's a really hard passage to preach because it's such a concise and comprehensive explanation of the gospel. It, it's a big gospel and it's necessary for both Christians and non-Christians. And so, in some ways, I've said a whole lot of stuff about this passage. And in other ways, I feel like there's still so many things that we could say about it. And so, I'm not sure what you're going to get today. (laughs) But I'm excited because I love this passage. And there's four main things I want us to focus on. And that's what this passage tells us about the grace of God. It's, It's four things. It's four Fairly simple things. And that's, number one, that it's personal. Number two, that it's present and active. Number three, that it's effective. And number four, that it's not done yet. That's what Paul's going to tell us here as he walks through what the grace of God has, has done, what it is doing, and what it will do. It's, it's personal, it's present and active, it's effective, and it's not done yet. So let's start with the first one. It's personal. Here, I think this one is important for us to see, because if we are not careful, we uh, run the risk of doing something when we talk about grace or when we talk about the gospel that we should not do. And that's make these things kind of impersonal, abstract concepts, right? There's grace that we receive and we talk about it a lot and there's this gospel that's so necessary for our lives and we talk about it a lot. We want to, you know, be gospel-centered parents and gospel-centered spouses and gospel-centered employees and gospel-centered gospel-centered people. And as we talk again and again and again about the grace of God and the good news of Jesus, sometimes we forget that grace is amazing and grace is important because it's His grace. And the gospel is good news because it's His news. And so what we should see today in this passage when we talk about grace is that it's personal. It's, it's grace connected to a person. In this passage, Paul repeats himself. He kind of says the same thing twice. And so there's this slide we have, I think. It's the last one. All right. Hopefully you can see this. But the tabs are supposed to indicate his progression of thoughts. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he starts to say the same thing again in a different way. He says, who gave himself for us? He gave himself for us, and when he did that, that's when the grace of God appeared. And he says, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and that's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to purify himself a people for his own. That's to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The point right here when we're talking about how the grace of God is personal is to recognize that the grace of God only came. It was only made manifest in the world. He brought salvation for all people because Jesus gave himself for us. That's why grace matters. It matters because it's His grace, and he came willingly. And this is huge for us to understand, because there's people out there that want to say or put some sort of distinction between uh, Jesus coming into the world to save us and dying for our sins and uh, you know that just kind of happening accidentally. I spoke to someone a couple weeks ago that said that they didn't believe that Jesus came to die for our sins. They believed that the Father just kind of sent them into the world, sent him into the world against His will, or that Jesus was this you know, great servant, but wasn't God's Son. And the fact that Paul here makes it explicitly clear, clear that when the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people, it's because of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. His grace matters because it's His grace. And it's not an abstract concept. Right? The gospel isn't some theoretical story that we can sit around and just talk about. We should sit around and talk about it. But these things matter because they're the story of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Grace matters because it's His grace. It's, It's personal. He says that the Grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This doesn't mean that all people have salvation, right? We're not universalists. What it means is that salvation is available for all people. All people have the opportunity to be saved. All people have the opportunity to benefit from His grace. It's that He's opened the door when He came into the world for salvation for all people. His grace is personal. It's also present and active. Notice the way Paul talks in this passage about what the grace of God does. First, he says, it appeared. That's past tense. It came into the world. Then, he shifts gears. Bringing salvation for all people. That's in the present. It's bringing salvation. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and enabling us to wait for our blessed hope. These things are still happening. It is bringing salvation. It is training us to renounce ungodliness. It is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is important. When he says that it's bringing salvation, I think it's important for us because... When we share the gospel, we too often slip into believing a lie. We slip into believing, well, Jesus came into the world, he did his thing, and then he gave us a mission and left. And now it's you and me who do all the work. Right? The grace of God appeared, that happened. And now we do it. But Paul here is making it clear to us that the grace of God appeared and it is still in the present in progress of bringing salvation into the world. And that should be very, very, very encouraging to us when we share the gospel. That should give us a sense of urgency about sharing the gospel. Because if it's not just me doing it, if it's not just you doing it, it means that God, His grace, is already at work out there. He is right now, even as we're sitting in here gathering together, He is working in the world. His grace of God is still right now in this moment, this day, this year, this month. It is bringing salvation. And so when you and I share the gospel with someone, we're not starting something new. We're not doing a work that hasn't been done yet. Instead, we're engaging with God where His grace is already working in the world. And that's good news for us. Because if I share the gospel on my own power, with my own ability, I fail. If I think that it's all on me, and my conversational ability, or my skills at, you know, making friends and influencing people, then the gospel is not going to go forth in Hannibal. But the reality is that the grace of God is still working. It's still bringing salvation for all people. That door has been swung wide open. And our responsibility is simply to join him in what he's already doing out there. When Paul tells us that the grace of God is still active, is still present in training us, it should also be encouraging to us. He says it trains us to do two things here. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Simply put, it trains us to say no to sin. And It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it trains us to say no to sin, and it trains us to say yes to godliness. That's what the grace of God does in us. It's appeared, it's bringing salvation, and it's training us to do these two things. And the fact that it's present, the fact that it's happening right now, means it's a process. Right When Christ stepped into my life and saved me, I did not immediately go from a geranium-bashing, lighter-fluid-spraying hellion of a child to the golden boy who always obeys perfectly. That doesn't happen. And I'm sure that you can look at this past week or even this this morning in your own life and see how you don't always obey perfectly. That's because the way the grace of God trains us is progressive. We grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and and keep growing. It's something that we're always going to be in in this life. As long as we are in the present, His grace is training us. And that's good news. Don't raise your hands. But how many of you, if you were told, say, a year ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago, that you would be still struggling with that thing you're struggling with, would believe it. Whether it's anger, or lust, or self-doubt or depression or anxiety, but that thing that you feel like you just can't beat. That's where you are right now. And if you could go back in time and tell yourself, hey, I'm still dealing with that in 2016, you would ruin your day. It's really easy for us to get incredibly discouraged when we think about some ongoing struggle with sin. I don't mean an ongoing giving in to sin. I mean an ongoing battle with sin. It's really easy for us to wallow in self-pity and defeat. It's really easy for us to think that God just isn't able to deliver us from it. It's really easy for us to think that You know, maybe God's grace really doesn't work in our weakness. Because if it did, wouldn't we be past this by now? Whatever it is. But it's in struggles like that, in these things that we continually face again and again and again, that we need to remember what Paul's telling us here. That his grace continually trains us. It's a process. Sometimes God does miraculously deliver us from a specific struggle. And thank God he does that. But sometimes, he miraculously allows us to fight it again and again and again and again for our whole life. And in both of those, his grace is working in an incredibly amazing way. Because it's training us, whether it's instantaneous or forever, It's training us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. That's what it does. But it should also encourage us, not just in defeat, but in success. It should encourage us to simply do what he says that it does. If God's grace really does, if it really is right now in this moment, training all of us to say no to sin and yes to godliness, then don't you think that we should do that? if He is enabling us, if His grace is working on us, like Paul says that it does, then doesn't that mean that the next time that we're faced with a choice, am I going to say no to sin or not? Shouldn't we say no? Because that's what it's doing. I think it should also be encouraging the fact that His grace is training us progressively, continually, all the time. That means that right now, as we've been sitting here for the past however long we've been sitting here, his grace is training us. That means I, that means you, have received more training now than we had five minutes ago or ten minutes ago. By the time we walk out those doors, his grace will have trained us more than he has now. Later today, His grace will still be training us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. When we gather together next week, we will have all received more training to say no to sin and yes to godliness. By the time next year rolls around, we will all have received more training to say no to sin and yes to godliness because that's what His grace does. And it does it to us. We sit here and get trained. Obviously, as it trains us to say no to sin and yes to godliness, we participate in it. We do things like pray, read the Bible, have fellowship with one another that's real and that is encouraging and that convicts us and challenges us. We participate in his training, but it largely is done to us. It is present and active. And this is important. Because of number three. It's personal, it's present and active, and thankfully, it's effective. When Paul describes the grace of God in this passage, he makes statements of fact, he's not offering his opinion. He's not trying to craft some metaphor for what it is or what it does. He's saying this is what the grace of God does. It has appeared. It is bringing salvation. It is training us. That's what it does. Period. And it will have its intended effect in us. It will train us to say no to sin and yes to godliness. It's doing it and it will do it. Look again at Paul's repetitiveness here. Notice that when he says that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, what the parallel statement to that is for Paul. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, we can have confidence more than confidence. We know that we will, in fact, be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions because it is connected not to us, not to our obedience, not to our willpower, not to our determination, but it's connected to the fact that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. What Paul is saying is that one of the purposes of Jesus' death on the cross for us was that we might be delivered out of lawlessness. So the question then that we have to ask is, did Jesus do what he set out to do on the cross? If the answer is yes, which I believe that it is, then he has in fact redeemed us from all lawlessness. We're free. And because of that, we know that his grace will in fact train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It'll move us out of lawlessness and into something else. And with the next part, right, it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Parallel to this is that Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, I would ask, did Jesus on the cross accomplish what he set out to do? Absolutely, he did. He has both redeemed us from all lawlessness and also purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has done that for us. That's already happened. And because of that, we can know that His grace will in fact train us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. It's inevitable. It will happen. His grace is effective. Now, I know what you are all thinking because it's the same thing that I'm thinking. And that's but what about when I sin? Right, if if this is true, if this is how his grace works in us, if it is continually training us to say no to sin and yes to godliness, then then why do we still sin? First of all, what we should not think is that it's because somehow his grace is ineffective. We should not think that somehow his word is not true. We should not think that Jesus did not accomplish what he set out to do on the cross. We should not think that there is something somehow deficient with who he is and what he's done or his grace that he shows to us. We're still in sin and we still sin and we still fall short because we're deficient. We sin because we believe a lie, because we live a lie, because we don't live like this is true. We live like we haven't been redeemed from all lawlessness. Instead of recognizing that we're free, we pick up those chains again and put them back on and say, I don't have any other choice. I must do this thing. We don't live like he's purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Instead, we live like those who just just can't do it. I I just don't have the ability. Never mind the fact that his word says that we do in fact have the ability. Never mind the fact that he's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit so that we are empowered to walk in obedience. It's just too hard. When we fail to say no to sin. It's because really what we're doing is we're saying no to God's grace. We're saying, do not train me to say no. Do not train me to say yes to walking in godliness. We're saying no to him instead of saying no to sin. It's not because his grace is deficient. It's because we are. We're saying, don't do your work in me. God's grace is always effective. But sometimes we just don't want it to be. Notice he says that he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When we think about our failure to say no to sin and yes to godliness, we should think about what it means to be zealous for good works. When I think of zeal, I often think of eagerness. When Jen and I first moved to Kentucky, we lived in an apartment on Southern Seminary's campus. And we used to often retreat into our apartment and make jokes about the happy seminary people. Because we came you know, out of the, the business world for the most part and were living around all these people that had just gotten out of Bible college and had came to seminary and were just really cheerful and happy and bubbly and a whole slew of other adjectives all the time. They were annoying, really. And they were just so... Eager to do good. That it was annoying to us when we just wanted to, you know, let a Netflix movie buffer for like three hours so that we could watch it because back then the internet wasn't that fast. And so when I think of zeal, that's often the picture that I have in my mind. I have somebody that's just eager, just happy. Like I, just, I just want to do good works all the time. And I think, like, that's just not me. I don't want to do good works. Sometimes I do by his grace, but other times, like it's it's a matter of gutting it out. If you don't know what that means, have four kids and then get up for breakfast. The word Paul uses here when he talks about Jesus purifying for himself people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's also used to describe this political sect that was active in this time period. Listen to how these people are described. Zealot opposition to Roman rule was rooted in zeal for the Torah, that's the Old Testament law, and for God, the only king. The zealot regarded himself as an agent of divine judgment and redemption resolutely and fearlessly contending against idolatry, apostasy, and collaboration. Their leader would be the Messiah and no one else. As hostility between Rome and Judea sharpened, the religious motivation was channeled by nationalist feeling into a holy war. They, the Zealots, became increasingly militaristic, One Jewish historian calls them brigands and robbers. In Latin, they were called assassins. But their supporters called them patriotic guerrillas. The people that hunt and shot guns, not the silverbacks. When you hear that description of these people that wage war against the establishment, these people that have an allegiance to God above everyone else. These people that believe that they're waging a holy war. What's the first thing that pops into your head? What? The Crusades. ISIS. That's very different from bubbly seminary people. Although the Crusades, maybe. That's what it means to be zealous. It means to be so committed to a cause, to be so devoted to it, that that's what your life becomes about. And when we think about what it means to be zealous to good work, zealous for good works, it doesn't mean that we're always happy about doing them. It doesn't mean that we're bubbly. It means that we're committed. Not that there's anything wrong with being bubbly. It's okay means that we're committed to doing good works, even and especially when we don't want to. And Paul tells us that that's one of the things that Christ's work on the cross accomplished for us. And so, when we're doubting that this is true, when we're struggling with sin, when we say no to His grace and instead say yes to sin, those are moments when we should Remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done for us. Remind ourselves of the fact that he has purified us so that we are zealous for good works. And then be committed to doing them even if we don't want to. It's not about our commitment or our determination. But both of those things have been redeemed by him so that we can be determined and we can be committed to doing good works even when we don't want to one more thing i don't want to say about this before we move on is that one of the the criticisms i often hear of bc is that people say that we're we're too soft on sin whatever that means what I would say to that is that that's just dumb. Because the reality is we wage war against sin with the only weapon that scripture gives us to do so. And that's the gospel. That's the grace of God. And so if when we continually again and again and again and again seek to apply the gospel and seek to apply grace to sin, you think that means we're soft on sin, then I would tell you that you're mistaken. It doesn't. It means we are being as hard on sin as we can possibly be because that's the only weapon that we have that Scripture tells us will be without a doubt effective against it. And the reality is that most of what parades around as being tough on sin is actually exchanging one sin for another. It's saying, give us your anger, give us your lust, and we will give you legalism instead. But the answer Scripture gives us is what Paul says right here. And that's that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That is what will be effective against our sin. And we just need to hear it over and over and over again. It's personal. It's present and active. It's effective. And last but not least, and thankfully, it's not done yet. Paul says that as the grace of God is training us to say no to sin and yes to godliness in the present age, we're waiting for something else. He says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're we're still waiting for something else that hasn't been done yet. The grace of God has appeared. It's bringing salvation. It's training us. And yet we're waiting for something that it's going to do. He says, we're waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for the salvation that has been brought to be completed. We're waiting for our training to be done and over. We're waiting for all things to be made new. We're waiting for all the sad things to come untrue. We're waiting for him to do what he promised that he would do fully and finally. That hasn't happened yet. When we talk about hope... A definition for hope that we've used at B.C. in the past is that it's future-oriented longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what it means to hope. It means to look for the future, look toward the future, and long for God's promises to be fulfilled. But what's interesting about what Paul says here is that he doesn't tell us to have hope. He tells us that elsewhere. But here, he says we're waiting for hope. Specifically, he says we're waiting for our hope our blessed hope. We're not told to have it. We're told to wait for our hope. And again, hope is a future-oriented longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. He's saying our hope is really coming. The reason why he says that is because he knows who Jesus is. In Second Corinthians, he says that all the promises of God, they find their yes in Jesus. And so he is the future fulfillment of God's promises. And we're waiting for him to come and fulfill them. We're waiting for our hope. We can have hope in the present, but the reality is that our hope has yet to be revealed. He's appeared. His grace is training us. It's enabling us to wait. And yet our hope is still coming. Our salvation will only be completed because of him coming. Our training will only get finished because of him coming. All things will only be made new when he comes. All the sad things will come untrue only when he comes and makes that happen. Our hope, just like the grace of God is personal, our hope is personal. We're waiting for a person to come. And as we look toward the future and we long for that coming, we need to be reminded that We're not just longing for that because that's when our broken selves and this broken world will finally be made whole. We're waiting to be with the one that's going to do that. That's what's going to be so amazing and so great and so wonderful about the new creation is not that it's just a new creation, but because the presence of God is there, because Jesus is there. And when he comes, he'll make us complete. Paul tells us here that the grace of God came. Jesus came. He appeared. He brought salvation. He opened the the doorway to salvation for all people. And he's continuing to work in the world and do that again and again and again. And we are all here because that has been done to us. And he's continuing to work in us and through us. He is having his way in us with his grace. And it is effective, and it will be completed even as we wait for that completion to happen. Just a minute, Daniel's going to come and introduce the Lord's Supper. Doc's oh, right there. Sorry. He's looking for some form of confirmation. Uh, but before we go there, I just want to say one more thing about this passage. And that's the reality that all of this is making a huge assumption about you. Everything I've said up to this point has been assuming that you are one that has taken advantage of that opportunity for grace. His grace came. He brought salvation. He opened the doorway for everyone to be saved. And if that's not you, then this passage's application to you stops there. If you haven't placed your faith and your trust and all your hope in Christ for His salvation, then His grace isn't training you. You're not able to say no to sin and yes to godliness. And so... I would just encourage you today to recognize that His grace has made salvation available for all people. Grace is unmerited favor. What that means is that we can't do anything to deserve it. We do not deserve it. And yet He gives it anyway. And that's good news for us because that means that we don't need to do anything to get it. He gives it freely. Our response is simply placing our trust in him for our salvation. And when we do that, his grace does what Paul says that it does. It brings salvation. And it trains us and grows us and enables us to wait for when our salvation will be made whole. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your grace is bigger than we are. (laughs) That's not just greater than our sin, but it's greater than our obedience too. God, I pray that you would help us to keep on believing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done that we would see in both our failures and our successes and in your holiness a forever increasing grace that makes up the difference. Jesus, we thank you that you are obedient to your Father and that you gave yourself for us. We have been redeemed that we have been and are being purified, and that our hope in you is not in vain. Pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would just remind us again of the grace you've shown us. Amen.